what we were doing now is we were declaring a truth, the ultimate truth, the truth in which everything is based on. In, one, in John 1, 18, it says, No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor except the uniquely beloved Son who is cherished by the Father and who is held close to his heart. And in Hebrews, the words are more of concepts than like a single word that betrays a thing. So the, the concept here where it says he is held by his, close to his heart is when a son sits on his dad's lap or a daughter sits on their father's lap, it's the closest place of intimacy in Hebraic culture. So let me read that again. No one has ever gazed upon the fullness of God's splendor except the uniquely beloved son who is cherished by the father, who is held close to his heart. Now this is where we come in. Now Jesus leads the way to that place of honor at the father's side. Okay, I, wasn't, I was going to bring out this verse later on, but I felt God say, I want to start there. So have a picture. I know some of you, and I've struggled with this because I know that some people have not had good relationships with their father and struggle with the intimacy picture of sitting on a father's lap and being cuddled and cherished, being able to hear his heart. I understand that there are some people who have been abused. That picture doesn't resonate with you. But I'm hoping that through what I'm going to deliver that God's going to rewrite the truth of that over your hearts and your minds and your wounds today. <clears throat> so I don't know if you've noticed, whenever you read a book that Paul, not Paul Elliot, <laughs> but Paul the Apostle has written, he always starts in Jesus. Can I have some air? I'm not wearing my shoes on purpose as well. Okay, I've got to be obedient. So, and they're my really nice pink ones as well. So you know how obedient I'm being. So I'm going to start in Jesus. Now what I've done is I've gone through, I love the book of Hebrews. I particularly love the Passion Translation of Hebrews. I think it is beautiful. If you don't have it, buy it and read it. Over and over and over and over again, because there's so much truth in there, you probably would spend a lifetime and still not be able to discover what God has for you. So I'm going to start off with Jesus and describe to you what Hebrews says about who Jesus is. So Jesus, first of all, is appointed heir of everything. So let's just understand that we are, Father God is a spiritual being. We essentially are spiritual beings first and foremost before we are physical. So when it says that Jesus is appointed heir of everything, it means physical, so your natural, your physical, and the supernatural. And it's through Jesus that God created the panorama of all things in all time. So he's pretty important. He's the dazzling radiance of God's splendor. He's the exact impression of God's true nature. I think it's in John as well where Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father. And it says he is his mirror image. You look at Jesus, you see the Father. He holds the universe together. I think he's got it covered, guys. 
And this is interesting for me. I've never picked this up. He's expanding the universe by the mighty power of his spoken word even today. So we all know that in, Levit- in Leviticus, they describe what the high priest did in the Old Testament. I don't know if, well, what they do is once a year, they, the, the high priest is allowed to go into the Holy of Holies. He's got this big veil. He's got to um, kill a goat, the atonement sacrifice. He does something with the lamb, and there's a whole lot of stuff, that they, lots of blood and guts and blah. But once a year, this guy's allowed to go in. What he does is he takes the blood of the goat and he goes and sprinkles it on the mercy, che- the mercy seat and then he sprinkles it all around. That's quite graphic. It's quite gross. I think, I wonder what it must smell like. Anyway. So he's only allowed to do that once a year and that's for atonement for himself and atonement for everyone in the camp. So this is what Jesus did. Now, his atonement is so much greater, and I'm going to describe and walk you through this story. I've, I've kind of, today I haven't made as much detailed notes because I want the heart of this to come out rather than the planning of it to come out. So I'm feeling a little bit out of my depth. <laughs> the throttle is open. <laughs> Steve will understand. Okay. So I want to go to Daniel. Daniel 7. So if you guys can open to Daniel 7, verse 13. So now I'm going to describe a spiritual happening, and then I'm going to describe the physical of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. Okay, so in Daniel 17, Daniel had a night vision. He said, I saw in my night vision, and behold, I'm reading out of the American... That thing. Oh, no, I'm not. But the, the American one is slightly different wording, and I'll deal with that now. So I saw in the night visions, and behold, on the cloud of heaven came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And there he was given him, who was the Messiah, domain, dominion, and glory, and kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion was everlasting. And it shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that should not be destroyed. So when Jesus sacrificed, that's what happened in heaven, in the spiritual. So today I'm going to deal with the spiritual as well as the physical. Two things I noticed. Well, one was pointed out to me, which was interesting, was that Jesus, when he came into the, it says that he was like the son of man. And now we all have started to realize that when Jesus went back into heaven after he died, he didn't go not only as God, him, like God who he is, but he went like the Son of Man. His humanity, hey babe, remains with him. Is that right? He's not even listening. <laughs> Busted. Okay, I'm going to go with this. Daniel seven thirteen. Okay, so when Jesus came back into heaven and he was presented to the Father, he was like the Son of Man. Different wording to him being the Son of God. Important to notice that. The other thing was, and in the American Standard 
blah, blah, blah version. It says that, and they presented him towards the to the ancient of days. Interesting wording. So Jesus was presented to God. That's very interesting. So I was like, why, why? This is Jesus. Why, why did that happen? And I believe it's because he came back as the son of man to represent humanity. He couldn't just walk back into the throne room. He honored the protocols of heaven. He didn't just barge in. Completely submissive to his father. Even though he had probably every right to be the son of God, he came back as the son of man. Now, just a little side, like what is they? Who is they? Who would be there? In Revelations, Ezekiel, I think in Daniel as well, they describe the cherubim. Now, guys, it's not the cherubs. You know those fat little angels that they draw and they're like cute and chubby and they play a harp? These guys are nowhere near that. Please take that picture. Delete it off your brain. It's not true. These guys, don't even, they don't even describe them as angels. Some of them have six wings. Some of them have four wings. They have wings, not two to fly only. The other wings are to cover their face, their feet, because why? They are continually in the presence of God. The ancient of days, his majestic one. They are the ones who probably present Jesus to God as the ancient of days. We're talking a holiness, a splendor that our brains cannot comprehend, the throne room of heaven. It's beyond our imaginations. Most of us have never met a king or a queen, so we can't even comprehend on a natural scale what it would be like to walk into the throne room of heaven. Would we? No. But then Jesus does something. He takes his blood, his sacrifice, that perfect sacrifice, and he sprinkles it on the mercy chest, the mercy seat, which is in heaven, seated, and he sits on his throne next to God. Both God and Jesus are seated in heaven, which in a Jewish kind of context is when you're seated, it's a place of rest. God, it says in Genesis that God rested from his works, all his works. He's still seated. We're in the seventh day where God is seated from his works, which means that he planned everything before. Am I? <laughs> so Jesus needed an escort into the throne room of heaven. Jesus needed an escort into the throne room of heaven. What escort is ours? I'm going to jump around in Hebrews because my planning went Hebrews 1, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 3, and then God's mixing it up, so I'm just going to jump around. <clears throat> so in Hebrews 10, it talks about through the blood of Jesus that we enter into the throne room of heaven no hesitation with boldness. Jesus had an escort of cherubim who are mighty warrior guardian angels or creatures. We get the blood of Jesus. He introduces us to the Father as brothers and sisters, and we get welcomed into his family. From that point onwards, 
we are told that we can come into the throne room at any point with no hesitation, boldly and with confidence. Why? Because of the truth. What is the truth? What did we sing just now? We belong to the Father. He's our Father. I wanted to speak on that place where I described how Jesus and God the Father are seated. We come into a place of rest when we come into the throne room. Why? Because God asks us, the one thing he asks us not to do is not to bring in works of our own, our dead works. We are to leave outside that sacred threshold the Bible speaks of. He doesn't want us to bring any of our own stuff, our own work, our own trying, belonging, our tablets, Facebook profile, nothing. We come as we are. Because Hebrew describes how our consciences and our hearts have been sprinkled with that same blood. I don't see people, Christians, living as if they are without hesitation, without, with boldness, approaching their Father God, and I'm talking about myself too, knowing that my conscience is clear because of the blood of Jesus. I don't see that. I see very few people living that life out. And that's abundant life that Jesus talks about. We talk about knowing whose you are and who you are. That is the foundation. That needs a revelation. So I wanted to look at, because of this, if you read Hebrews, and I encourage you to go and read it for yourself because you'll start picking out all these truths that God is saying. Because in Hebrews 2, it says how Jesus annihilates the effects of the intimidating accuser who holds us against the power of death. But we are to hold on to the truth that when Jesus embraced death, he set us free from the torment and the dread of death. Do we live like that? He annihilated. Annihilated means, in Jordan's language, he blew it up. He took it out with a, a bazooka. <laughs> it is no longer there. It is obliterated. That is the truth, that the power of death no longer has a hold over us. We do not die. We pass into our eternal resurrected beings. He annihilated death. Let that sink into your hearts and into your minds because there are people who live with a fear of death. But Jesus annihilated. He annihilated the intimidating accuser's hold of death over us. Therefore, he has no hold over us. See, what, Jesus, what Hebrews describes is that we take what the Israelites did was that they, were, they never entered into the eternal calming rest like the Passion Translation talks of, that, that God wanted them to go into. 
And one of the, 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 the two reasons why they didn't go into it, one was unbelief, and unbelief causes doubt. So they doubted God in amongst living with miraculous signs. We do this today. We doubt God and his promises in living in his miraculous provision. I do that. I doubt God and his promises, even though he is miraculously providing for us every single day. That, my friends, is a dead work. (laughs) What does Jesus say about dead works? We repent from our dead works. There is nothing that we can do when we walk into that sacred threshold, step over that and come into and sit in the presence of God the Father and we get to hear his heart. Nothing of that is on our works. Nothing. We are invited in. Our only job is to respond to that invitation and we still don't do that. I was discussing with somebody, John DeShada, that I think one of my gifts is to proclaim truth. And truth isn't always hard to hear. But that is what it is. So Jesus' death and his blood sacrifice does the following, and this is what Hebrews lists. He secures our salvation for ever. That is the truth. We are secure in our salvation. The power of death is broken, annihilated, obliterated. It is gone forever, for all time. He thoroughly cleanses our consciences. I think we struggle with this one. But the truth is, he thoroughly cleans our consciences. We're the ones who bring it up again, or that accuser brings it up. But in God's eyes, our consciences are clean. We have been freed from dead works. And the reason why we are free from dead works is to worship him and to serve him. We're not free to go and sit in our father's yachts and do nothing for the rest of our lives. Jesus didn't do that, and Jesus is our example. Jesus enacted a new covenant so we can enter a relationship with God for those who accept his invitation. It is always and always will be an invitation. His one perfect sacrifice he made for us made us perfectly holy and complete for all time. His one sacrifice made us, every single one of you, are perfectly holy and you are also complete for all time. That is the truth. He welcomes us, as I described before, as brothers and sisters into God's family which gives us the right and the privilege to come into the Father's presence. And again, in the Hebrew language, there is no word for presence. It's a concept. It's a face-to-face. 
So when we talk about God's presence, which can be like I'm in the presence of Bronwyn right now, that's distant and disconnected. But when we speak of the Hebraic word, it's face to face. That speaks of intimacy. And we are to come to God's face with our face to face, boldly, with no hesitation, and with confidence. That speaks of a child who knows who their dad is and knows who they are. Our hearts have been sprinkled with blood to remove, remove impurity, and we have been freed from an accusing conscience. We have been freed from an accusing conscience. And we are now clean, unstained, and presentable to God the Father, inside and out. Every single thing that you have done in your lives that is wrong, that is sin, you have been freed to the point of that your conscience is clear. You are unstained in God's eyes. This is how he sees you. The problem is our job is to see that truth back to him. Because we still behave as if we are dirty, stained, and we have a conscience that is not clean. So, that is why I believe we don't stick around or we don't go into heaven. Some of us go over the threshold and then we sit in the corner and say, Hi, God, how are you doing? Some of us have crept forward. Some of us go there, and then we come out again. Me, I want to stay there. I said to Ant, this has been my journey for a few years. I never want to leave there. And God is telling me more and more and more with the understanding and the revelation that I am spirit, that I can be here physically on the earth, but I can be in heaven with him all the time. Let's not settle for anything less. Then Jesus is, why did he do that? So in Hebrews, there's another thread. So I've picked out a thread in Hebrews about the the throne room of heaven and what Jesus has done. There's another thread that I want to pick out, and these are the warnings in Hebrews. There's six of them. Warnings, really? But we're free from conscience. Yeah, okay. But this is not our job, our part. Remember, we had nothing to play with this part of the job. Jesus did it all. We have been set free. But we do have a part to play because we co-heirs and we partner with God. That doesn't mean we sit on our father's yacht and do nothing. So our first warning in chapter 2 warns us not to drift off course or warns us not to drift away from the truth. What is the truth? Who are we and whose are we? Truth is, Abba Father, I belong to you. There is so much in that truth, you could spend days meditating on it. But the point is, it's like swimming out to sea. Gary tells me, because I haven't done this, (laughs) that if you go swimming out in the sea and you go beyond the waves, you always have to keep looking back to the shore. Now, it sounds absolutely ludicrous that a big, like coast, that you could lose track. But that's what happens. This is a big truth, but we can lose track and we can get 
drift off course if we don't keep going back, looking back to that truth, looking back to that truth, looking back to that truth. Who am I? Who is God? What has Jesus done for me? I am set free. We've got to keep going back to that. So it warns us not to drift off course. And that we need to be all the more engaged and attentive to the truths that we have heard and not to despise the truths. So we can hear a truth like the Israelites did and we can actually despise it. God's whole goal was for the Israelites, was for them to come up on the mountain with Moses. He didn't want a single man to interact with them. He wanted all of them to come into his presence. That's still his goal for us today. It's not for me and Gary or Steve or Helen or any of the other leaders to be a mediator for your relationship with God. He wants each one of you to hold on to that truth and step over the sacred threshold and come in and sit on his lap because he wants to be face-to-face with each one of you. And he's big enough. He can do that. Hebrews 3 and 4 warn us not to enter into his faith-like rest. So what, what, I don't think I topped it off right there, but what they're basically saying is <laughs> that they didn't enter into that place of rest. It's actually a realm. It's not a being, it's a realm that you are with God, that you find your rest and your peace. And the Israelites chose not to do that. We always have a choice. Because it's an invitation, we're not forced into this. God is saying, will you come to me? He's not coming to us. He's already sent Jesus. Do you understand that Jesus has already come? The Holy Spirit is here. He doesn't need to come to us, but we need to respond and come to him, the Father. And that's what we are warned not to do, like because of doubt and unbelief. Hold on to that truth. Don't drift off course. In chapter 5, we're warned to be fully devoted to the full assurance of our hope until life's end. Fully devoted. Being devoted to something means you think about it, you plan for it, you. There's a devotion. It's a heart attitude. When you're devoted to somebody, your heart is connected to them. You think about them, you want to be with them. We have full assurance of our hope right until the end. This side of eternity. In chapter 10, we're warned not to sin willfully after we receive the truth. This is a hard one. So we understand the truth that we are God's children. We have been welcomed into God's family. The truth is our conscience are clear. The truth is that we are clean before him. That is the truth. To sin willfully would mean to, I believe, to doubt that truth. If you've heard it, like the Israelites, they heard the truth, but they chose not to believe it. Every day we wake up and we go, I choose to believe that you, God, are my good father, despite what is going on around me, that I'm welcome in to the throne room of heaven. If I don't choose to hold on to that truth, I'm choosing disbelief. 
dead works. I have to work for God for, to be presented clean. So if I'm better, if I do more serving, if I, whatever the case is, serve more, if I read the Bible more, then I can come into God's presence. No, no, that's not the truth. Jesus has done that. And in chapter 12, which is interesting, is that he says God will correct us. So he, Paul warns us that God will correct us as a faithful father. He's going to correct us. He's going to train us. The amazing thing is we heard this other day, even though I've kind of, you know when you hear something, but you like it doesn't quite sink in. And it was like, it validates your sonship when God deals with you as a son, when he corrects you, when he pulls you in and he disciplines you. It means you are his son or his daughter because there are people living in this world who don't have correction from God the Father because they are not sons and daughters. They are orphans. We, on the other hand, are corrected by our Father who's faithful because he wants to bring good works in us. So we welcome his correction because it validates who we are. I know, like, there's some teenagers here and you're like, I don't like punishment. No, God doesn't punish you. But discipline is another story. And your parents' job is to discipline you. Why? Because they love you and they want the best for you. It makes the reason why you're disciplined by them is because they are your parents. It's the same with God. And then again in 12, we're warned not to close our hearts to the voice of one who speaks from heaven. Sure. I don't think I need to say more. So, here are some of the things that we can do to help us in these warnings. We are to fasten our thoughts fully onto Jesus. It says we have a renewing of our mind that we as a collective have the mind of Christ. So we take our thoughts and we fasten them onto Jesus. How you do that is, I think is different for everyone. That's why it's quite a broad thing. We are to embrace Jesus as our apostle, who's the sent one. He's come to open up the kingdom of heaven in us and our king priests. It speaks of submission. We submit, surrender fully to Jesus, our king, priest, and apostle. We are to continue, to continue to courageously hold firmly to our bold confidence and victorious hope. So there's a, is a it's, the words they use is very, some days you're going to have to hold courageously onto that hope that I can boldly enter into the throne room of heaven because the accuser's been coming and telling me lies and it's hard sometimes to hear outside of that broadcast of what the accuser's talking to us about. It's hard to hear of a victorious hope when we're living in a country where we've got a stupid president. As Christians, we have a victorious hope. Did you know that God has appointed Zuma? Read the Bible. All authority is given. He gives out. Zuma was appointed by God. It's 
I don't want to be in Zuma's place when he stands before God and God says, what did you do with my authority? That's not the point. We need to honor the role, not the man. That guy, Mimi, whatever his name is. Mursi, I won't do the rest. I've got to learn, if he's become president, I've got to learn how to pronounce his name. But he said, he called Zuma honorable. You're an honorable man. You are honorable because of your role. You may not be an honorable man, but your role is honorable. We've got to learn as Christians to honor the role of our president. The man may not be honorable or whatever, but we learn to honor his role. Does that mean that we can send on Facebook pictures of Zuma looking like the things that they, that's out there? Is that honoring to his role? This is hard. His role is God-given, God-anointed. Therefore, we honor his role. And how we do that, you ask yourself the question, how do we honor the president of South Africa, because when we honor his role, we will pull down from heaven honor back into government. We will honor and we will pull down and submission back into this country because it's needed in this country. We need to honor what God has put in place. Come on. We need to guard our hearts against Hardening our hearts against hearing God's voice. God against that. God's ways are way higher than ours. Sometimes they don't make sense at all. But it's his kingdom that we're in, not ours. We are to search our hearts every day. This is what the Bible says. And take care that we don't have any unbelief or evil hiding in our hearts. It will lead us astray, and it will make us unresponsive to God. Everything that we are doing and told to do is because when we come into the Father, it will stop us from going inside. And the thing that he wants the most is relationship with us face to face. And when we have these things in our hearts and we do these things and we don't fasten our thoughts onto Jesus, it stops us from going into him because he has invited us in. His invitation is open-ended. We're the ones who stop ourselves from going in. We need to cling to the faith that all we know is truth, big truth. Cling, as in you're holding onto a life boy or a life jacket. You cling onto that thing. The amazing thing is that it says that Jesus understands our humanity. And we are not to allow our frailty, our weaknesses, and shame to keep us from going freely into the throne room of heaven. And to go boldly where love is enthroned and where we can get empowering grace for our time of need. Our shame, our frailty, our weaknesses stops us from going inside. But Jesus came as a human. He went under every, it says, every temptation. The Bible says every temptation. He went through, and he was able to fight off. So therefore, every temptation that you face, Jesus understands. So that shouldn't stop you from going into the throne room of heaven, ever. 
This one was amazing. Jesus learned to listen and obey through all his sufferings. In the Garden of Gethsemane, this blew my mind. Because, you know, when it says, Jesus prays and says, won't you take this cup from me? This cup of death, as it were. I've never quite understood, like, understanding what Jesus did. And he says, the joy set before me, knowing what I'm going to endure and suffer and all that. Why would he say, take away this cup? this death. And I kind of thought, well, maybe it's because Jesus is asking, maybe there's another way, because there's another way, not the cross and all that. And in the Passion Translation, the guy explains that that cup means premature death. So Jesus was praying that God would deliver and save him from premature death so that he would get to the cross and choose to die on the cross. He wasn't praying that the cross would be taken away. He was praying that his body, his frailty, his humanity will last until he is able to get to the cross and then die there. That puts a whole other spin. If his body was already at the point of sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew that physically he might not survive. And then it says God was gracious and he delivered him from premature death so that he's able to die on the cross. Listen to those words. God was gracious and he delivered him from cutting short what Satan wanted him to do, was cut short and have premature death so that he wouldn't go on the cross. And God delivered him so that he would endure more pain than any human can understand for us so he could die on the cross. The joy set before him was his goal that we would be joined to the Father as brothers and sisters in his family. So because of that, we turn away from dead works. Why try and supersede that with our dead works? Why? When we go into the throne room of heaven, there's so much more. I mean, I've got like another whole list, but I feel like just... There is so much more in Hebrews about what we can do and what you go and read it. It says in come in Hebrews. I didn't write the verse, so trust me. <laughs> Sorry. My computer was moved and then I couldn't find Jenna has my iPad, so everything was a bit jumbled. But it says, Don't allow your hearts to grow dull and sluggish. And to stop that, we go running into his heart to hide ourselves in his faithfulness because he empowers us. You know, the throne room of heaven, if you read Revelations, and I think Ezekiel, it talks about it. In the throne room, it talks of power. That's where we get our power. That's where we are empowered by him. We are empowered by our identity sitting on our father's laps, him whispering in our, my ear, me listening. In the throne room, it's not about me talking as much as me listening. That's a hard one. <laughs> I like talking. Listening to his heart for me. Listening to what he wants me to pray for, who he wants me to pray for. To see what he is seeing. That realm is where we find rest. And one of the things that I want to encourage you guys in this holiday season, 
where we're all going off on holiday, hopefully, is not to clutch out from God. Like, you know that, put a sign on the door of heaven and say, see you later. Because we don't ever find rest that way. We only find true rest in his presence. So on holiday, practice being with God. Practice being in his presence. Practice quietening yourself, silence and solitude, so that you can go into his presence. Practice, go over the truths of what Hebrews talks about, so that we can walk in boldly with no hesitation. Because once you're in there, you hunger for it more and more and more. The longer you stay away, the more you grow dull and sluggish. So don't stay away this holiday from God because he is inviting each one of us to come and be with him. It's not about doing anything. It's about being with him.